the assumptions the brain makes about physics are broken. <laughs> Our brains process broken physics, so that's fine. That's normal. <laughs> it. Physics in our brain is an approximation of physics in the real world, and it gets us through most things. We, it's okay. That's definitely <laughs> true. I'm a physicist, and I approve this message. Hello, and welcome to Not Yet a Doctor. Uh, my name is Sienna. I'm doing a PhD in neuroscience at McGill University. My name is Beth. I'm studying for a particle physics PhD at Sapienza University of Rome. And my name is Alistair, and I'm studying analytical chemistry, doing a PhD, uh, at Queen's University. And together we are the PhD3. Derby! <laughs> so today I did come up with a tagline. Not yet a doctor, the podcast where each of us would describe a rainbow differently and all of us would be right. No, wait, Aww. are we, hold on, wait, are we talking about, about colors and how you can never know what a true color is because we all interpret colors differently? Yes. <laughs> no, we're not, not exactly that. And that's, that's up for debate. We don't necessarily all... We don't know how colors are perceived necessarily by all of us. It's not necessarily yeah. different. There's no, there's no reason to suggest that it's different. Yeah, but. that's true. But it's also this idea of like the way that we view the world, especially with colors. It's like what I see and call red, you may, if I was to transplant my consciousness into your body, Mm-hmm. it might be different it might look different yeah, to yeah, me yeah, yeah, yeah. but we'll never know yeah we'll never know but like i say it's it's unlikely that is the case anyways just because everything we know about color processing in the brain is it's pretty highly conserved between people so and our brain creates our perceptions of the world right so it's unlikely right. that all of the things that are the same creating yeah. our perception of the world somehow now our perceptions are different it's, mm-hmm. it's an untestable qu- question and like we can't yeah. know for sure but like yeah. everything we know physically is the same right but we're gonna get to that <laughs> oh my god well, thanks for thanks for listening <laughs> spoiling the ending of the episode <laughs> i more meant the fact that if i were to describe a rainbow i would probably describe it from a biology standpoint which would be correct Beth would describe it from a physics standpoint which would also be correct and alistair might describe the more chemistry aspects of like water probably yeah. Alistair would go off on water <laughs> and he would also be correct and together that would create like a more holistic understanding of what is a rainbow anyways and being able to understand something at three different levels of science is like way more useful than only one so yeah and that's kind of the purpose and kind of the of podcast the, kind of the purpose of the podcast but today is my episode so we're only going to understand it from one perspective <laughs> cool <Right. laughs> all other perspectives are invalid Yes. <laughs> I'm kidding. So, today we are going to talk about vision and in particular color vision. Nice. So I first wanted to ask you guys, what do you know about how vision works and how color vision works? Because I have no idea what your basis is for this, how much you know about the eye and the brain and processing visual information. And yeah, I just wanted to hear from you guys. I know a very little bit. Yeah. I know that you have rods and cones in your eyes Mm -hmm. and the rods are the ones that do like light 
and dark and movement and stuff and they're like really really sensitive to changes in light and that kind of stuff and then your cones are the ones that detect color yeah. and then you have ones that detect red green and blue and then they fire at different rates compared to how much red green and blue is going on and then your brain sticks all of that information together and makes a picture yeah we're done That's it. <laughs> And the fact that it's not really related to colour vision, but it's a really cool fact about um, vision and your brain, that you, like, see the world upside down. Mm -hmm. So, like, what the information that gets focused onto your retina will create an inverse image. So it's like, yeah, like, what goes into your brain is upside down compared to the real world, but your brain knows how to turn it the right side up again. I think that's really cool. Mm -hmm. It's true. Okay, well, that was a really good background, Beth. You know a lot, so this is going to be great. I'm just going to jump off what you started saying there, Beth. As you were saying, we have an eye, and the eye is like a great organ for focusing light. And I have two, personally. We have the eye. <laughs> I'm picturing one, but you're right. We both have two. Most people have two eyes. And they're a great organ for focusing light onto this neural tissue at the back of your eye called the retina. And the retina is where these neurons are, including the photoreceptors, which are the rods and cones, and then also other neurons that then ultimately project along the optic nerve to your brain, and they send visual information to your brain. So what you were saying about the rods and cones is mostly true. The rods actually, they're very sensitive to changes in light up to a certain point, but actually they get saturated really fast. So most often we're only um, seeing with our cones. So any daylight, brought, like bright light, room lights, daylight that's all just cone vision hmm. there's certain times where you can have both rod and cone vision like at twilight when the light is sort of dimming and then when it's night that's when your rods actually are fo um, functioning so your rods are not functional they're technically functional but like they're not providing any more information because they're saturated at most times of what we actually consider seeing so it is actually your cones that do most of the heavy lifting i did not know that one, one other yeah. question um why was I told as a kid that if I ate carrots, I'd be able to see at night? <laughs> uh, because the photoreceptors in your eye use these proteins called photopigments. Uh -huh. And photopigments love the retinol, which is vitamin A. It's important oh, okay. for antioxidizing of the photoreceptors, this type of thing. It's really good for your eyes. I see. You won't be able to, I don't know. Like, I thought I'd get like laser vision. I don't know that it's true. No, <laughs> definitely not. That would be so cool if you It's could, definitely though. like, it's good for your eyes, but vitamin A is good for other things. I mean, it's an antioxidant. What are you going to do? <laughs> well, good thing I ate all those carrots. So the, yeah, the general shape of the eye, you have the light coming through the cornea and the lens. It's focused onto a spot on your retina called the fovea, which is like where most, like pretty much there's only cones in the center of the fovea. And then it's mostly cones in the outer side of the fovea because you want all of, because we normally see in daylight and you want all of the light to be focused and easily perceived, you have a ton of cones there. Rods are actually more in your periphery anyways of your vision. If you notice, you can only ever focus on actually a very small part of your visual field. Mm -hmm. Everything is mostly out of focus, but our brain, because our eyes are moving so much, our brain takes all of these pieces, puts it into a visual map, and it doesn't feel like things are out of focus. Mm -hmm. But if you really think about it, actually most of your vision is out of focus. Um, and this is because the fovea is where most of the light goes and the rest, there's not a lot of light hitting the side of your retina. Right. And then this information, so 
the photoreceptors are actually at the back of the retina, so they pass through like all of these other layers of cells, which are mostly transparent. So that's why you don't have like, which are trans necessarily transparent, so you don't have light bouncing around in your retina, mm. <laughs> creating confusion. Mm -hmm. So then it hits the photoreceptors. They transfer the information back to retinal ganglion cells. Retinal ganglion cells transfer the information along the optic nerve to your brain. We understand all mm -hmm. that. So now, in order to understand color vision, what you have to understand is that cones come in three flavors, as Beth was saying. You can call them red, green, blue, but this is a little bit confusing because they don't represent really red, green, mm -hmm. and blue. Hmm. So color scientists refer to them as long, medium, and short because they perceive long, medium, or short wavelengths of light. Right. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> again, this is actually kind of interesting because two of the cones, so they're L, M, and S. So the S cones, which are the short wavelength, are pretty distinct in the terms of their, like, their spectral information that they collect. But the medium and long, their peak activity point, so like the wavelength that they most prefer to get light from and collect it, is only about 30 nanometers apart from mm. each other. So they have a huge overlapping spectrum. Wait, what's the range of visible wavelengths? Um, it's approximately 380 nanometers to 700 nanometers. Okay, so that's like... 750. Uh, I'm struggling with that math. It's like 10% of your visual range is overlapping between... Yeah. Well, they all overlap, don't they? Because they all exist. It's not like there's red, green, and blue, like you're saying. No, yeah. They, each, each cell has like a, a, a Gaussian curve yeah, of that activity. Makes sense. Um, and yeah, it's like a slider, exactly. like you can, you can slide the intensity up or like that's kind of what it detects is because um, the brain interprets this. So if it's getting, so if it's, you've got the, the LM and yeah. S, right? Long, medium, short uh, neurons. And if the long one is firing at 80%, right? Like it's, it's not at the top of the peak, but it's just right, down yeah. one of the sides it can tell which side it's on, first of all. And then if the, the medium and the short aren't firing at all, you can interpret that as purple. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there was this really cool paper that was published recently called Color Space Geometry Uncovered with Magnetoencephalography. Mm. And the authors are Isabel Rosenthal, Shridarsh Singh, Catherine Herman. Those are the, there's three first authors. And then it's from the lab of Bevel Conway. So I was actually able to interview two of the three first authors, so Isabel and Shudar. And then I also talked to the PI, Bevel Conway. Cool. My name is Bevel Conway, and I am an investigator at the National Institutes of Health in the National Eye Institute. My name is Shridar. So my background, I majored in chemical and biomedical engineering. So then I came to the NIH to work in Bevel's lab. So that was a bit of a pivot for me because I had never taken a neuroscience class. But I decided to join because I was interested in the, the, like the computational techniques that are used for the research. Um, I wanted to learn those skills, so I kind of learned all about color and vision on the job. Awesome. And how about you, Isabel? Uh, yeah, so I actually majored in neuroscience. I went to Wellesley College, and when I was there, kind of focused on cognitive and computational stuff. And Bevel was actually my advisor at Wellesley and uh, he offered me a job because at the time he was moving from Wellesley to the NIH to start a lab there. And so I went with him partially because I was really interested in how sensory experiences are constructed. That's something that I'm still interested in even though I'm not in Bevel's lab anymore. 
And then also just because it's, it's so interdisciplinary, the work that he did, that I got to try a bunch of different techniques, which I think really helped me kind of understand what I wanted out of, out of grad school. That is Bevel, Isabel, and Sridhar, who I interviewed. Cool. So the National Institute of Health is in the United States. Yeah. National Institute of yep. Health slash the National Eye Institute in Bethesda, Maryland. And so they recently published this paper, like I was saying, called The Color Space Geometry Uncovered with Magnetoencephalography. So would you like any of those words defined? I have many questions. Yes. What? Yeah, I need all of those I, words defined. I, I, want to, I want to break it down and see what I can understand by myself. Okay. Um, so... One thing that I'm going to say is that mag- magneto means magnets, so I'm assuming that magnetoencephalopathy. Encephalography? Encephalography. Yeah. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. Um, it's going to be encephalography using magnets. Okay. And then I also know, mostly from listening to this podcast with you, that encephalopathy is a like brain disease yeah and so encephalography i'm gonna guess is um studying of the brain mm-hmm. and i'm gonna say that the n bit means inside so you're like studying the inside of the brain what end bit the n in encephalography oh. yeah okay maybe mm. i guess so but maybe I took it too far. <laughs> so cephalo actually means head, not brain. So okay. N probably means inside head, which is brain. So you were right. It's encephalopathy, brain disease, encephalography, brain measurement. Hmm. Okay. More closely, I think, the so linguistic is this, assessment of that word. <laughs> is this, if, if we're doing magnetic brain measurement, is this just like an MRI kind of thing? Not quite... But close. No. Oh, <laughs> not, okay. Qu- not quite, but no. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no. Okay. It's not. Okay. I just, you know, I I love but, NMR and MRI, and yeah. check out our episode from season one about that. Yeah, and they're not like unrelated <laughs> in the sense that they both. So, magnetoencephalography doesn't. It measures changes in magnetic field. And MRI in your brain. In your brain. And MRI measure uses right. magnetic fields to measure blood flow, I guess. I didn't even know that your brain had a magnetic field. Well it has an electric field. So let me give you Bevel Conway's explanation of a basic explanation of MEG, because I think that'll help clear it up. MEG as it's commonly known, so we don't have to say magnetoencephalography every time. But I want to say magnetoencephalography okay. every time. <laughs> Magnetoencephalography. Alistair, Alistair, this Alistair episode is already going to be two hours long. <laughs> we got to use short words. <laughs> okay. Okay. Now, MEG is kind of a cool technique. It's like, a, I mean, it's right out of some science fiction novel. The way it works is by measuring the magnetic fields that are induced by neurons when they fire action potentials. And for those of you that know about you know, the right-hand rule in physics, anytime there's an electrical current down a wire, that will induce magnetic field lines that go in the 
in the pattern of your fingers if your if your right hand thumb is going along the axis of the current flow. So these are tiny, tiny, tiny little magnetic signals. But in these rooms that are very well insulated, you can measure those magnetic signals and we can measure them across the, the brain. So cool. That's what MEG is. So MEG measures these magnetic field changes induced by the fact that our neurons are essentially tiny, 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 tiny little wires running through our brains. And because they send currents, mm-hmm. they induce tiny little magnetic fields. So what is so what is color space then? Yeah, so color space geometry is the other kind of technical term in the title of the paper that I thought you guys might want to know what that is. So I also asked uh, Bevel to explain what a color space is. So we're all familiar with color spaces. A color space is just how we order colors. So, you know, the the conventional one that we all learn in school is red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet, and then it keeps going around the circle back to red. So that sequence of colors is a color space. And, you know, people since the dawn of psychology have been arguing about how colors should be ordered or sequenced. And there are lots of different color spaces available. Uh, and the color spaces differ not in the coarse kind of red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet, but in sort of how much space is there between the different colors. So when we say red, orange, yellow, is red and orange, are they equally different from each other as yellow is to green and green is to blue or is there sort of are they further apart or closer together and Mm -hmm. that spacing is what we refer to as a geometry um, within the color space or of the color space that's really interesting yeah and it kind of yet again we're brought back to linguistics in this science podcast because like in different languages (laughs) there are different names for different shades of different colors and stuff Mm -hmm. and um i don't know how that influences like they say that the inuit have how many different words for white or i don't know whether that's actually true it's probably it might be something i've just made up but that because white is so important to them they have so many different words for it and that like relates to seeing many different shades of white i think the the thing is that um, they have many different words for snow, um, which is actually a linguistic thing in that they have, okay, like, we would yeah. say dry snow, first snow, wet snow, slushy snow. Like, those are all in their language right. one word. Like, it's one unit as a word. Um, that's where that comes from. But it's, yeah. it's a similar thing. I know, like, in, in sign language, um, there's different types of sign language, right? There's, like, American sign language. There's um, French sign language, yeah. British sign language. Yeah. and um, British. When describing colors, it's often associated with what people might think those colors are. And I I learned when we were in Sweden, someone told me that the uh, Swedish sign language action for blue was you'd point to your eye, because so many people in Sweden have blue eyes. Whereas in, I think it's ASL, you point to the sky, because the sky is blue. But like in Sweden, the sky isn't really blue all the time, right? Like it's quite cloudy. (laughs) Sky is usually gray. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so it's this, you know, association with colors in in sign language. Um, This, it's funny, talking about color space makes me think of a video I watched recently by this guy called Technology Connections on YouTube. Super cool videos. Mm -hmm. And he was talking about why the color brown is really weird. Because, and maybe you'll touch on this, Sienna, I don't know, but brown probably is like kind of a made up color in terms of like the combinations of wavelengths that make oh, up yeah, this color. Oh yeah, I've heard about this. Uh, 
And this is another one as well, like Magenta or something. We're, we're going to talk about okay. all this. Why I won't go spoil to... my episodes <laughs> so much, guys? <laughs> I won't spoil it anymore then. I'll just say that I watched Sorry. a really cool video about Brown um, yeah. with this guy called Technology Connections, and you should go check that so, out after this episode. So you make a really good point, Beth, is that there are differences in the way languages name colors, and that is different among cultures, among people, among languages, and corresponds to kind of differences of importance of colored objects within their culture probably mm-hmm. that's what we suspect at least um and so like yeah. pretty much all languages have a word for red red is like a very commonly named color but the other colors mm-hmm. are not necessarily so like some other colors are not necessarily so much commonly named that's kind of really interesting that somebody studied it as well mm-hmm. yeah so there's a lot of people who study color apparently and like a lot of research on this and like he was saying there's a lot of research on this psycho- psychological aspect of color color naming and languages mm-hmm. this type of thing we're not mm-hmm. really going to talk about it too much because this study really focused in on english language speakers and english language naming of colors and then recording mm-hmm. brain activity when so so mm-hmm. before we actually get into the paper we're gonna play a little game okay okay where I'm going to show you a colored spiral on the screen, uh-huh. and you get to use one word, okay? Only one word to okay. name this color, okay? okay? We have... I, can I just say that I'm really excited to do home science experiments on the podcast? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I feel like I pioneered this in my antimatter episode, so I will definitely take the credit for this becoming a <laughs> thing on the podcast. I'm sorry, your home... I'm very excited to become a part of it. Your antimatter home experiment was sit there, look at you creating antimatter. That was, <laughs> I was so mad. But wasn't it cool? <laughs> it was something. Um, and for listeners at home, we'll either put some of these pictures up or you can like try and guess what we're looking at, I guess. Yeah, we'll find a way to get these colors to you. So we are going to... We'll, we'll definitely try and include a picture of all of the colors in our Instagram post. Don't worry. But in the yeah. meantime, listen to these people, these two friends of mine, struggle to describe colors with one word and one word only. You only <laughs> this but, is like critical. You only get one word to do this, okay? So choose your word wisely. Yeah, it's like a game of code names. Choose okay. your word wisely. Okay, color number one. Are you ready? Okay. All right, Beth, one word. What's this color? Green. Alistair, what's this color? Green, yeah. All right, Alistair, what's this color? Ah, I see what you've done. Orange. <laughs> Beth, what is this color? Really? Um, gold. Ooh, okay. Uh, oh. Alistair, what is this color? Lime. <laughs> Beth, what's this color? Mmm, green. And I think this is the final color. Beth, what is this color? Mmm, cream. Alistair, what is this color? Yellow. Okay. So thank you for participating in this little experiment. That was fun. Um, Can I just say one (laughs) quick thing? Can I just say one quick thing? It was kind of weird because all of the colors were, like, all of the spirals were in the same location. Um, Mm -hmm. As soon as you flipped it, the color looked, like, a little bit different, and then it, like, adjusted to be its own color. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, I tried. I was hoping to give you guys enough time so that you can, like, focus on the spiral and... Name mm-hmm. the color. Okay. Now here's Bevel Conway to explain the premise of the paper and also the premise of the experiment we just did. So, you know, the background for this whole problem is because people have been fighting about what the best way is to represent color spaces, um, you know, there's a kind of open question. 
but all of the work in the psychology of color spaces all sort of takes for granted that there is a way that the brain represents color and that there is a color space that is kind of like the ur pure brain way of doing it and these psychological experiments are all kind of probing it trying to figure out what it is like what is the color space so what we decided to do given there's all of this debate is kind of flip the question on its head and say well instead of using psychology as an indirect measure of brain response why don't we use the brain responses directly measure the responses to color and then compare the patterns of responses to different colors as a proxy as a way of assessing how similar different colors are in their representation we were limited because in an ideal world we would show lots and lots of different colors and then we could measure all of their responses and then we could plot up their relationship to each other in terms of the patterns of brain activity but because we wanted lots and lots of data for reproducibility and so on uh, and because this is really a kind of way of approaching this problem that had never been done before we restricted ourselves to just eight colors that's four hues at two luminance levels light and dark and we showed these different colored spirals to people and while we did that we measured patterns of activity in their brain using magnetoencephalography so we just did the first experiment of this paper cool which is they recruited people online, actually, to just name colors. Mm -hmm. uh, these eight colors, and specific, specifically, as Dr. Conway mentioned in his previous clip, these are four colors at two different luminances. Oh. So that means they're all, they all have the same sort of location in a color space oh. of cone activation. And they all sort of are equidistance in terms of what cones they activate. So that's why they're kind of like it's not like there's no obvious red and but they are all located kind of in a similar distance from each other in terms of cone activation wait and they have they're at two different luminances yes this is super interesting because that means that the one that beth called gold and mm -hmm. the one that i called custard or no beth called it cream um were both like a yellow <laughs> hue at light and dark yeah but yeah. I was almost going to yeah. call that orange one brown. Like, it looked brown. Okay, sorry. Yeah, you Continue. called it orange, right? I did say yeah. orange. Yeah, I so... didn't understand why you called it orange. Because it was like an, it was an orangey brown. I, oh. All right. So, I mean, I'm not judging. Gold was a good one, though, because that is kind of like dark yellow is like gold. I always went with beige. Beige was my first thought, mm. and then I changed it to gold. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to send you guys just a picture of their first finding in this paper and then I'm going to leave it to Isabel and Shridhar to describe kind of the setup of this experiment and why they did it. Basically uh, we were talking about color spaces earlier mm -hmm. and how when you pick colors for a color experiment you want to make sure you understand how those are balanced with each other. So for instance we were looking at the difference between like hue and luminance and so it would really matter that if we have these two categories of a low luminance and a high luminance high luminance stimuli that the like low luminance stimuli are all actually more or less the same luminance. And that gets tricky because different colors kind of have, like yellow is intuitively more, has more luminance to it than like blue. And so you have to be careful with how you choose these. So basically we used a color space that is 
balanced in terms of the activity of the eye. So uh, just like the average photoreceptors for a human being. And uh, we picked colors that were equidistant in this space mm -hmm. so that they would basically all activate the, the cones of the eye in a, in a consistent manner. So that was how they chose colors. And now I have an answer for why were the colors displayed in spirals? For, I can talk about the spirals. Yeah. So the visual system mainly responds to edges, like luminance edges. So when there's a difference between the background and the object. Mm. So if you did a big circle, the edges would be all on the outside and it might drive less of the visual system. But with spirals, there's lots of edges. Also, the brain responds to orientation. So certain cells are tuned to a particular orientation. So a spiral gets lots of edges and it also gets a lot of different orientations. So I think the reason they chose spirals was to drive a lot of the visual system. Cool. That totally makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Another reason that, um, so again, we didn't choose the stimuli, but another reason that Catherine was telling me that she was interested in this is that something that's really important in visual studies is that you maintain the direction of where people are looking to be constant. So you want people to fixate usually in the center of the screen. And so a spiral kind of naturally draws the eye towards the center. Mm -hmm. And when you have uh, these like really long studies where people are just staring at a screen with like flashing stimuli, you want to kind of help them keep, keep their eyes where they're supposed to be kept. Cool. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that's why colored spirals, that's why those colors, that's why. Mm -hmm. spirals, she mentioned, which I thought was really interesting. Really she mentioned interesting. in that clip, Catherine, that's one of the authors. Yeah, so yeah. there was three first authors for this paper, Catherine, Isabel, and Shudar. And Catherine, I actually have a clip I can play about this as well, just to uh, explain sort of how this, how this study came about. Sure. Yeah, so I mean, I want to give credit here to Catherine Herman, who is the mm. third first co-author. And, mm -hmm. and so this study was kind of special in that there's three first co-authors. And the reason for that is that this work was pretty much done by postbacs. So, so me and, and Shudhar and Catherine were all between uh, undergraduate and grad school when we did this work, which meant that we were only there for a short period of time in the lab and then we went off to do other things. And so Catherine was the one who piloted this work um, and she was the one who really came up with the idea. And then uh, I came in and collected most of the data and did a lot of the analysis and, and making figures and then I left and Shridhar did a bunch more analysis and a bunch more figures. So it was very much a kind of passing of the torch. Um, but so, I mean, from, from I, so I, I do want to say this was really Catherine's idea, but one of the reasons that she thought it was interesting is that at the time, this was like back in, I think in like 2015, 2016 maybe, um, at the time there had been some papers that had come out showing that you could use MEG to decode object identity. So you show people objects and you can decode what they're seeing. And so that kind of raised the question, well, can you do that for color as well? So that leads us into, Alistair, you look really shocked. It's just so cool. The idea that you can <laughs> use MEG um, to decode mm, object mm -hmm. identities. Um, and yeah. then presumably you're going to talk about how they've done it for colors too. Mm. I had for a minute completely forgotten the whole magnetic um, bit of this. I was just so engaged in learning about like... Magnetic encephalography? Well, yeah, but no, I was so engaged about like thinking about colors and color perception and that kind of thing that I just couldn't... Yeah. Um, I got 
when they were talking about the spirals, mm-hmm. I was thinking about how sometimes if you have a blob of colour, then like even if it's the same colour, it can look different in the centre from at the edges. Mm-hmm. And then that also made me think about how like if you take the same colour but you surround it with a different colour, yeah. then it can look like a completely different colour. Mm-hmm. So yeah, colour perception um, like, is so heavily dependent on the context that colour is in. Yeah, I, I could show you so yeah. many examples of that, but we're going to talk, we're just going to dive into the study right now, and yeah. then afterwards, at the end, okay. we're going to talk yeah. about all of the cool things about colour perception. Okay, So that sounds great, because this is yeah. like mind-blowingly cool. <laughs> so, we just did the color naming experiment where we looked at colors and named them. And the first thing you notice if you do that experiment is that you are very, very likely to call blue blue at both high and low luminances, yep. unless you speak in English, at least. And same yep. with green. Green is green, even if it's dark or light. Mm-hmm. But that mm-hmm. pink color and yellow, orange, brown color <laughs> does not have consistent naming between luminances. And so... This got really interesting because then they used MEG to record brain responses of participants who were looking at these same colored spirals and naming them. And so essentially they found that, well, of course, first of all, with the MEG, you can decode what colors people are looking at, which is really exciting and cool because we don't really know how vision and color especially is processed within the cortex. There aren't particular, like there's small spots that seem to be color sensitive. So you can find a region of neurons that appear to be sensitive or want to go for one color over another. But like, this is not particularly widespread and they might still respond to other stimuli. So there's not a lot of color selectivity necessarily within the cortex that we can find and definitely not over a broad range of cortex, which is one of the, the thing with MEG is you're not recording from individual neurons or even like, hundreds of neurons like the spatial resolution is not very good so you're getting regions of like thousands to tens of thousands neurons all responding Mm -hmm. to a color across the cortex which is not not typically the level at which we see color sensitivity or specificity processed we see it on a smaller scale then they use this they did this color naming experiment first as a pilot and you can see that there's not there's high concordance between naming of blues and greens but low concordance between naming of the pink and yellow, which are like warm and cool colors. So there's high concordance. What does con- concordance mean? Concordance is agreement. like... Agreement. Yeah, agreement okay. between. So we agree that light blue is blue and dark blue is blue. We disagree that light yellow is yellow and dark yellow is yellow. There's different words that are used mm-hmm. for those two type colors. For the warm colors, there's not a okay. whole lot of agreement on what term you use to name the color. Mm-hmm. But in the cool colors, there's a, you, you call it blue. You call it green. Mm-hmm. So... That was kind of their first finding, which was really cool. Their second finding, well, their second thing, of course, is that they can differentiate, they can use the MEG signals within a person to determine what color they're looking at. So I'm going to play you a clip again from Sridhar as well, because there's something else interesting about this finding. One, one thing that surprised me, this isn't one of the main things, but we showed, we showed the subject's color terms as well, like <laughs> green and blue. And we tried decoding the color from data, the, and the colored spiral from the, the term data. And we found that, that the late stage activity from colors could be used to decode the terms, but late stage activity from terms couldn't be used to decode color. 
So that's implying that when you see a color spiral, you, you there's something going on where you're thinking like green. Mm-hmm. But when you see a, a, a term, you're not imagining that color, which, which you know, I, I thought that might make sense for that to be the case, but it wasn't. And I think maybe more work on that specific, that specific question would be interesting to see if it's the case. So essentially what they found is that you can use the MEG data that you collect from the colored spiral to decode the color term, but you cannot use the color term to decode what color it was. That kind of makes sense to me because if you see the word green, there's a lot of different greens that you could think of. Yeah. But that's if you what see... I also imagine too. Yeah, yeah and... that's what came to my mind as well. Yeah, like even even a if you use more words, like you know, a very specific sky blue, still mm-hmm. a lot of colors that you could be thinking of. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Or and it's possible too that maybe just thinking about the word that describes a color doesn't actually produce a signal in your brain, like or even a very strong signal that represents that color. Like you might say mm-hmm. sky blue and picture a color, but it might not be just a strong enough image in your brain to produce or replicate the same brain signal you would have when you picture mm-hmm. or when you see the color mm-hmm. right like the visual processing of seeing might be different than the sort of response that you get when imagining a color mm-hmm. right yeah cool so then so. can i i'm not sure if i understood correctly but like yeah. are they saying that they could take the data from the um, the MEG data and reconstruct the color of the spiral that the people were looking at? No. Or was it that they could take that data and reconstruct the name that the people would give to it? Yeah. So if I say gold, then I have a different like brain firing pattern compared to Alistair if he says orange. Yeah. And so it's important to note that in this study, they don't they are able to decode, like they use within participant measurements to decode. So it's not necessarily true that your response would be the exact same. Oh, okay, okay. But Beth's response would be oh, able okay. to decode the color for Beth's brain activity. Okay. So if they set me up and they make me look at this gold color 10 different times and then they show me a load of colors, then they could pick out the one mm-hmm. that was gold. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. And so yeah, I did a- like I asked them about individual versus like whether they looked among the groups, and I think it sounded like they just had a whole lot of data. It wasn't. It's not easy to compare between individuals. Isabel explained yeah. as well because of also just engagement levels. Like she was saying, I actually have a clip. I can play this for you because I asked this question as well. Sure. So um, let me see. Experimental realities. That's what I called it. <laughs> Um, the task, uh, so so I was one of the subjects in the experiment, which uh, was okay because we're really looking at very low level activity in the brain. We're just, we're not looking at kind of high level. So me knowing what it was about didn't really matter. But having experienced this, you're basically, you're in this dark room wearing this, you know, big MEG uh, helmet and just colors are flashing at you for like an hour and it's really kind of a surreal experience and some people sometimes would kind of fall asleep this is a common people don't talk about this a lot but a lot of these neuroscience experiments people or your animal subjects or whatever will sometimes want to fall asleep Mm -hmm. and so i think as an experimenter you kind of have to keep an eye out for that and kind of be like hey stay engaged (laughs) um but uh i think engagement is definitely 
one reason that we may see individual differences across people. It's also possible that, you know, for some people, color is, or is organized less dramatically possibly than, than in others. But I mean, the fact that we do see, we get fairly tight error uh, mm-hmm. does show that overall people have the same kind of organization. And I mean, I will say we also did screen people for like things like colorblindness and, and stuff like that. So we know that they are at least able to perceive the colors that we're showing them. So essentially what she is describing is that like audience and participant engagement <laughs> is kind of probably a key factor for why individual responses would vary between each other. When she talks about the tight error bars, this is um, referring to kind of what they found when they did analyze. So they like decoded everything individually, but they analyzed it together. So they averaged and analyzed it together and they've got very tight error. And what they looked at was not necessarily colors, like the individual color responses on their own, but the differences between responses to colors. So I'm going to have them explain to you some of their main findings. Yeah, so um, something that was done as as a bit of a pilot to this experiment is we had people uh, just use single words to name the colors that we were going to then show in the MEG. And we did this both with the people that we ended up actually scanning, as well as online, we had, I think it was like 50 people. Is that right, Shudar? <laughs> maybe you don't remember. Yeah, I don't remember exactly, 70 people maybe? Yeah, a good number of people that we, we asked online as well uh, to just name these colors. And we uh, found this pattern, which uh, we were not the first to find this. It's It's been documented in the literature that basically uh, people have more specific terms that they apply to warm colors and cool colors. And and the way that I kind of usually describe this is usually if you see a blue color, it's blue. If you see a green color, it's green. Whereas you have these hues of orange and red and pink and yellow, um, it gets a lot more specific, especially if you are also using luminance. So for instance, low luminance uh, yellow might be orange or brown, whereas high luminance yellow might be yellow. Um, whereas low luminance green is green and, uh, you know, is dark green and high luminance green is light green. And so uh, we tend to name these wrong colors more specifically, uh, which is really interesting. And there's kind of ideas about like, well, maybe that's because warm colors are evolutionarily more salient. They're things that might be people's faces or food or uh, or things like that. Whereas like cool colors might be kind of background items like sky and, and grass. But that's like all, that's kind of a, a way to explain it. That's not necessarily the, the, the truth. Mm-hmm. In any case, we found this. Um, and then what was really interesting is then when we actually looked at the uh, neural signals that we were capturing through MEG, the neural responses uh, across warm colors were less similar across luminances than for cool colors. Let me see if I can restate that more carefully. When, if you look at uh, like a low luminance green and a high luminance green, those were more similar than a low luminance yellow to a high luminance yellow. So basically the brain seems to be making uh, more of a difference between uh, two different yellows across luminances than it would be over two different greens. And so it suggests that we're naming these things more specifically because that's actually potentially how they're encoded, that we encode them more specifically, which is, is really kind of cool that you see that correspondence from, from behavior to, to what the actual neural activity is. So, Fascinating. Mm-hmm. So that's the first asymmetry that they found in their paper. So asymmetry mm-hmm. just means non-symmetrical. And what that means is the 
warm colors across luminance levels, so light or dark, were much more different in terms of brain activity than the cool colors were. Mm -hmm. So warm colors are like reds and oranges and that kind of end of the spectrum and cool colors are blues. Is that right? Greens. (laughs) Blues and greens, reds and oranges and yellows. Yeah. Okay. So that was the first asymmetry. Would you like to hear about the two other asymmetries? There were other asymmetries? I'm really curious. Yeah. Because I think this is such a cool There were three asymmetries. Okay, let's hear the other ones. Okay. Yeah, that was that was one of three asymmetries we found. I thought that was the most interesting asymmetry. Um, another one was along a similar vein that two different cool colors, let's like blue and green, were more dissimilar across were more dissimilar than two warm colors. So dark blue and dark green were more dissimilar than dark orange and dark pink. That one, that one, I don't, um, I don't know what if that's correlated to any behavior that I can think of off the top of my head, but that was another asymmetry that we found. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned there were three, so what was the third asymmetry that was found? Oh, that you can categorize colors across luminance levels. So all the dark colors were more similar to each other than all the light colors. So if you look at some of the plots, the the, the light colors are all clustered on one side and then the dark colors are clustered on another side. So our, our brains have a distinct representation for different luminance levels. Mm-hmm. I think I think that correlates to some color spaces, how each different color spaces have isoluminant planes. So planes of colors with the same luminance level. Um, and luminance is an important color aspect that we use for detecting objects. Mm-hmm. But it's also an interesting finding because um, I think this is actually a point I remember Bill making a while ago, that when you look at these, these, these colors, the first thing, if I ask you to describe it, that you would say would be, you know, it's, it's green or it's blue or it's yellow, not it's light or it's dark. And intuitively, it seems like the thing we would care most about extracting is the color, but it seems like the luminance is kind of the basic building block of categorization that your brain goes off of. So their first asymmetry is that warm colors are more dissimilar across luminance. So light yellow and dark yellow are more dissimilar further apart than light blue and dark blue, which is a cool color and same for the green and the pink. And this corresponds to the naming where you wouldn't necessarily call a light yellow color light yellow, you would call it beige or cream and a dark yellow might be orange or brown. Whereas a light blue is light blue typically and dark blue is dark blue. So that was their first asymmetry. Their Mm -hmm. second asymmetry that Shudar explained that doesn't necessarily like have a behavior associated, like we don't know why this might be, but the difference, okay, the difference within a luminance level. So if you look at colors all within the same luminance of dark, dark green and dark blue are more dissimilar. Like the distance between dark green and dark blue is more than the distance between dark yellow and dark pink. So warmer colors within a luminance level seem to actually be more similar to each other than the cool colors within that luminance level. Hmm. It's really interesting. Why that is? Anyone, yeah. <laughs> anyone could guess, yeah. you know? And then, of, so then they were saying the third asymmetry is that the difference between, I think, it's that there was a, a distinct difference between the high luminance and low luminance. Yes, yeah, so colors are more similar within luminance levels than across luminance levels. So this means oh. that light yellow is more similar to light green than it is to dark yellow. That actually, put that way, that is really interesting. Whoa, so that's... 
That's wild. And that, yeah, and that's what Isabel was saying. Is it's kind of odd to think because you, you want to extract. You think it's the color that's important to you, right? Like whether something is red, green, blue, or yellow. But your brain seems to think that the luminance is actually、mm. more important. But、mm -hmm. or at least luminance causes more of a dissimilarity than the color itself right. does. Yeah, and like when you see、so. when, when you had us describe those. Pictures. I don't. Well, we could only use one word, but like,、mm -hmm. there was only a couple that I would have said. Oh, it's actually it was the blue and the green. I would have said it was light blue, but、mm -hmm. like, yeah, we we described the color, not the luminance. Yeah, that's true. That actually in the warm colors,、mm -hmm. I was much. It was much easier to find a single word that fit. Compared to in the cool、mm -hmm. colors, where like Alistair says, I would have had to add more words to describe、mm -hmm. it better.、Mm -hmm. So these were the three asymmetries, which I think was like a really cool finding. It's really cool that they're able to decode、mm -hmm. colors、yeah. from brain activity and then compare、yeah. these brain act like the brain activity for these different colors. Like,、um, so I have some final. Not really fine. I have a lot more, <laughs> but I think so. That's pretty much the paper that I wanted to explain. But I also asked、um, Dr. Conway more generally about like what is color processing good for then, and like why why do we want to study it? What we find about how it what it does.、Mm -hmm. So and there's some really interesting answers, and also like just some really interesting stuff that his he or his lab have also looked into. So I wanted to.、Um, Just cover some more fun, interesting ideas about color. Yeah. In fact, we know relatively little about what color information is used for in human behavior. There's lots of speculation, but but in terms of kind of clear, hard evidence, it's it gets a little harder to pin down. Which is unlike things like face recognition, where it's very easily quantifiable what what it is that we're doing with. With that information, in, in the case of color, you know, some people think, "Oh, well, colors for detecting ripe fruit." Well, it turns out that colorblind people do fine at, you know, identifying and consuming ripe fruit. They, you know, this is true in wild populations of monkeys, where you have colorblind monkeys and trichromatic color normal monkeys all commingled in the population. There's no difference in their foraging abilities and so on,、um, and it turns out that. Touch and smell are probably as important, if not more important, than color in identifying ripeness. That's not to say that color doesn't help. I mean, certainly in pop out and so on. You know, if you have a colored image, a red hat in a crowd, then it pops right out. But maybe that's not for signaling ripeness. Maybe that's not for signaling, you know, for for assisting in foraging behavior.、Uh, so the question is, well, what is it for? Um, so there's a number of studies that we did, really in large part in response to this discovery of this extensive network within high-level object cortex that's involved in color.、It、was like, well, hang on a minute. If there's all of this brain that's involved in color in high-level object cortex, then color has to be doing something more than simply a kind of ancillary supporting role in. Helping object vision, you know, under certain degraded conditions, for example, it's it's probably doing something much, much more fundamental.、Uh, mm -hmm. So we've spent quite a bit of time trying to figure out what that more fundamental role is. 
so now I'm going to play a clip about a little bit more about what, what is color doing in our brain. What are we thinking about when we process color? Not necessarily thinking about what is color? How is color helping us process information? Yeah, so in, in experiments that um, Mariam Hazentash, Rosa Lefer Sousa, Arasha Fraz and I did that were published um, in 2019 in Nature Communications, uh, we reported on a very interesting kind of uh, illusion, if you will. It's, a, it's, a, it's an, the appearance of faces under low pressure sodium light. So mm -hmm. under these lighting conditions, this low pressure sodium light is monochromatic. It's got a single wavelength and you might have experienced it in parking garages or street mm -hmm. lighting. Sometimes it's used in, that, in, in those situations because it's very energy efficient. And, um, but what's weird about low pressure sodium light or any monochromatic light is that referencing the earlier discussion of the principle of univariance, there is no basis for computing for encoding color. The, the light is monochromatic, which means that all of the signals entering your eye are single wavelength. They may vary in intensity, but there's no basis for actually computing color. So, the, so you are operationally, objectively colorblind. And what's peculiar about that is under low pressure sodium light conditions, everything looks normal the, in terms of the shapes and, you know, the motion and you can tell movies what's going on. And, you know, if you walk around a room illuminated in low pressure sodium light, you know, you can tell there's an orange or pear, or, you know. It, now, it sort of soaks in slowly that there's something eerie or weird about the light. And then when you pin people down, you say, well, can you tell me what the color of this construction paper is? People are like, oh no, I guess it's sort of, I don't know, no, it's sort of grayish or something. And then you turn on regular white light and you're like, oh my God, it's like purple or blue or orange or red. I mean, it's stunning how colorblind you are and how almost weirdly unnoticeable it is that you're colorblind until you point it out. Mm -hmm. um, and it turns out, you know, that's not super surprising. Under very dim light conditions, when just the rods are working, you don't have the basis for color vision, so you're functionally colorblind under those conditions too. And yet, most people don't notice that under very dim light conditions, they're colorblind. Mm -hmm. you know, their vision is a little coarser and grainier, but you know, they can still sort of see stuff and navigate around. But you ask them, well, can you see the colors of things? And people, many people will swear they can, until you sort of pin them down and say, okay, wake your roommate up in the middle of the night on a dim lighting conditions and show them sheets of construction paper and say, tell me what colors there. And people will be like, oh my God, I can't tell. Um, so, so what's weird about this light is it's, it's high intensity. It's like daylight in the sense that there's enough of it that you can very clearly see the shapes of objects. Uh, and all objects look a kind of washed out, colorless, brownish, you know, hue, really mm -hmm. just reflecting the spectral properties of the illuminant, except faces. Faces mm -hmm. and faces alone look green, like startlingly <laughs> green. Um, not hands, not necks, not the rest of your bodies, just faces. And it works a little bit even in photographs of faces, and it works for dolls' faces. So it's, it's not about the skin. It's not some reflective property of skin. It's about a color memory that we have of faces, of normal face color. And it works across race. You know, we did it with African-American subjects and with Caucasian subjects and with Asian subjects. 
this is not a race effect. It's really some, an error signal that your brain is sending you that says, hang on a minute, something about this is really not right. Like in a very deep, you know, subjectively like, whoa, what's going on kind of way. And that error signal is reported as this like greenness. Hmm. Um, you know, people will describe the faces as looking sick. And there's, you know, from emojis of sickness, we know that people associate greenness with sickness, mm. which is also weird because there's nothing objectively green about a sick face. It's mm -hmm. slightly less red, but it's nowhere near green. Um, so, there's, so there's clear sensitivity to the colors of faces that are building up a prior about what the normal colors of faces are. And I think it's instructive that the only objects for which we have this paradoxical error signal is for faces. That points to a very special role of um, color in nonverbal social communication, mm -hmm. um, you know, about health and you know emotions and so on. Huh. So I think you know I think that's not the only role of color, but I think what color is doing for us is probably much more about about indicating state changes, telling us mm -hmm. about the likely subjective experience we have of that object as opposed to what an object is. So, so much of visual neuroscience has been preoccupied with object recognition, object identity, telling us what is that thing. And I think what color does is it doesn't tell us what it is. It tells us whether or not you're likely to care about it. It tells us how it is. Almost. Yeah, how it is and, and really whether or not it's likely to be something that you'll want to engage with or not. Mm -hmm. you know, what it means to you doesn't, mm -hmm. it's really not telling you the thing. It's saying, you know, do you care? Yeah. I mean, the best example I think are bananas. Throughout the life of a banana, its shape does not really change very much, but it changes color quite dramatically from green through you know, orangey, yellow, bright yellow to a kind of brown and then black. Mm -hmm. uh, throughout that, that sort of temporal evolution, it's the color that's telling you about the likely relevance of that object to you. The mm -hmm. shape information is basically the same throughout. It's always like, yep, there's a banana. Um, yeah. And what's fascinating to me is if you ask people, what is the color of bananas? They will tell you they're yellow. You're like, no, they're not. The bananas are lots of different colors. You just jumped to a conclusion that the question I was asking was, what are the colors of bananas you care about? Mm -hmm. But really, you know, colors, bananas can be lots of different colors. And I think that's sort of the instructive piece. So that's, that's I thought such was really interesting, interesting yeah, stuff about that is, what color processing is doing for us. <laughs> yeah, it kind of tells us how we care about it and that's a great point that if you ask someone what the color of a banana is they'll tell you what the color of a banana is when it's relevant to yeah them. when it matters mm -hmm. to like, them the color yeah. of the bananas that they like yeah yeah <laughs> and and talking about this green hue that people have under monochromatic light is really interesting because i remember back when i was a kid um my gran used to paint like she would do watercolor painting mm -hmm. and i remember her telling me we were doing some art project like nothing serious but she said, you know, when she took classes on, on painting, she was always told that for skin colors, you always put in a little bit of green. Mm -hmm. And, and like when you're making a, a, a person or a skin tone, 
you add green. And I thought that was so interesting. It's you had to pick so up green. But to hear curious. to hear that there's this other interesting relationship yeah. to uh, like but then he said that it doesn't work for hands or other skin and it works across yeah, other colors so of skin. Weird. Like it, that's fascinating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And dolls as well. Yeah. I think it's interesting too because like he brought up there's a lot of communication that's affected through the face through the constriction and regulation of blood vessels right and blood is what gives our skin a very reddish hue and undertone and communication of this in the face is really important for different state changes of people Mm -hmm. i guess like if you're blushing we all know that's red and the opposite of that like yeah you look white or green if you feel sick and that's really just the fact that blood is leaving your face right or blood Mm -hmm. is not at the surface of your skin so it's interesting that like under this monochromatic hue when you can't see red your face almost like makes an error signal telling you well then it like the blood vessels must be gone it must be slightly greenish that's my like error signal there's something wrong maybe this person is not Mm -hmm. feeling well um that's so very interesting stuff this has completely changed my perspective of the importance of color and yeah. and that like you know i i think not, not naively but i think i thought you know color is is part of object identification you know it's mm-hmm. it's a round thing it's red it's shiny like yeah. it's an apple yeah. but again i there i just use an example of an apple <laughs> being red apples come in many different colors but you just like the red ones <laughs> actually i prefer granny smith but uh, i mean also like <laughs> We can't exclude the fact of, like, way, especially the way Western um, education works, to teach A's totally. for apple, apples are red. Like, yeah, 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 oh, totally. I don't know if we could ever unlink apples and redness to even no, discover but, whether or not we naturally would assume they're red. But the idea that color communicates more uh, of a relevance information, if mm-hmm. someone is, is, you know, sick or uh, blushing or... You know, the mm-hmm. banana is ripe or green mm-hmm. or rotten. Um, mm-hmm. That's something I've never thought about, is yeah. that it's communicating mm-hmm. relevant, relevance, relevance, how the object is. But then they said colorblind people and animals can pick out ripe fruit just as well as not colorblind right, right. people. And, which yeah, but picking out ripe fruit and then, like, the relevance of the fruit to you might be kind of two separate things, right? Like, you can pick ripe fruit based on smell and touch, but, like, if you look at something and its color is ripe, then you might... Like, you're creating a different process. Yeah, and you have another piece of information to add in. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. Those things, yeah. And there's also so many unanswered questions that uh, color uh, plays into, like, how... um, we associate, and this is probably a lot more cultural, but we associate certain colors with certain things. And, you know, that's why companies use certain colors in advertisements or painting a room a certain color will give you a certain feeling. And I think that's, mm-hmm. um, I think a lot of people explain it with observational stuff. Like, oh, we see that people are more calm in blue rooms, so blue calms you. But we don't understand it from a like mm-hmm. physiological, biological perspective. Mm. Yeah. yeah, like how how color and emotion are yeah. processed together in the brain. And then there's so yeah. much, like we've already said, that's subjective and, like, mm-hmm. you know, are you calmer because you've been told that blue rooms are calming and that blue is a calming color and stuff, or is it actually, like, 
Is it fundamentally true that blue is a calming color? <laughs> Nature versus nurture. <laughs> we'll never know. <laughs> yeah. We'll never know. So I asked him two more questions that I think he had really interesting answers to. And that we brought up at the beginning of the episode, Alistair asked me about made up colors like brown, which is not made up, by the way. But I didn't mean that it's made up. I mean that it's like basically what we talked about all this episode is like yeah. brown is a dark orange, but yeah, also kind exactly. of a red. Like where does it fall? Yeah. Mm. And if, if you've ever dabbled in art, either digital or phys- like on paper, you know how like you know that different combinations of different primary colors really is how you end up making different mm-hmm. browns and different shades of brown. So yeah, it's I having dabbled a lot in art myself, I've definitely came to the realization a long time ago that there's no such thing as brown necessarily. It's just how you play with red, orange, and yellow and other mm-hmm. colors. But there is one color that I more recently discovered just doesn't exist, um, except in humans and in our visual processing. And that's magenta in some ways. It doesn't exist in some ways. Maybe I'm being overdramatic. Yeah. But, so I asked him what he thought about the color magenta and purple in general. What is this color? Yeah, no, that, I think that is one of the one of the fun problems um, of color is that color space is circular or, you know, spherical or something, whereas uh, the, the wavelength is linear. And um, I have a bunch of thoughts about that. You know, one of them is, um, I mean, I would say right at the outset, this is what makes purple a kind of fascinating color because in some sense, it's extra spectral. It's the color mm-hmm. outside of the spectrum. Uh, I like what Stephen Fry calls it, a, a, a pigment of the imagination. <laughs> um, it's, you know, it's, a, it's philosophically, it's unclear whether or not that, that's a valid take, but, but I think, you know, I have thought a bit about it. One of the things I think is a way of trying to parse it might have to do with considering the constraints of the cerebral cortex. So what we know is that a principle of brain function is maps. We map information onto a spatial topography of the cerebral cortex. And it's very hard given mapping constraints to map a linear thing onto a two-dimensional sheet. Um, so we see this for orientation, you know, their orientation pinwheels and so on. Uh, and so it could, it could be that the constraint of having a two-dimensional sheet uh, requires that color be wrapped around. Um, and you can imagine in a kind of trivial way, if you're a neuron city in the brain listening to, you know, two parts of the spectrum, you, there's, there are going to be inevitably neurons that are going to be situated in such a way that they uh, span the ends of the spectrum. And those neurons will then give rise to a perception of purple. Um, mm-hmm. It's a bit complicated because we know that there's a bottleneck of the photoreceptors uh, to begin with. So in the retina, you know, everything is broken down from spectral information, wavelength information into three numbers, the extensive activation of L, M, and S cones. And there's no reason to suspect that those things are circular. I mean, those are just three numbers. So the question is, how are they constructed? Um, But what we know is that you know, the visual apparatus, its goal is to try and create a representation that is veridical, that is actually out there in the world in some sense, 
I mean, if it weren't, then it wouldn't be reliable and reproducible and we wouldn't have selective pressures to maintain it, you know, within us. So, mm -hmm. you know, some mix of those ideas, I think, is, is where I would start to pursue that problem. And so just to give a bit of background, the, the reason why purple is a pigment of our imagination, according to Stephen I love Fry. That. Yeah. I know, it's such a good, yeah. <laughs> such a good sentence, but... It's because on the visible, visible light spectrum, as I showed you guys earlier, I think a picture of it, but it starts at UV light, ultraviolet, and then it goes up through blue, green, yellow, red, and then to far red. And on this spectrum, there's actually no magenta light. And this idea, the color of magenta is created from this overlapping signal of the long wavelength cones and the short wavelength cones. Like if you have activation mm -hmm. or light, a light, a combination of lights that are both long and short wavelength our brain has to come up with a solution for this like what is this color so yeah. it has created magenta and purple to represent this color but those aren't like they aren't specific wavelengths we have a linear yeah. scale but yeah, we wrap yeah. it around because you could have a light or lights that are coming into you that are both um you have both long and short wavelengths in them mm -hmm. well and yeah think about it you combine blue in light or in pigments, you combine blue and red to make purple. Purple, exactly. And but so... then that's so interesting in general that like you can combine two wavelengths and make a new color. Like the fact that superimposing, like the the interference of two different wavelengths, like a like a blue and a yellow produces a green in the middle I like I don't know if this should be obvious to me but it isn't obvious to me that that would be like a physical thing that would happen I think uh, I'm not 100% on this but like when you combine blue and yellow light you, like you shine both those wavelengths at the same time your receptors your cones are responding to the levels of those wavelengths so right? it's seeing the like that the short cone is responding to the blue and the medium cone is responding to the yellow so maybe we have even the... i'm gonna have to correct some things here yeah do because yeah, do. there's a huge difference between color mixing of pigments and color mm -hmm. mixing of light so if you combine blue light and yellow light you do not get green light this is not a thing okay okay blue and yellow are opposing lights and we talked about that before, like the posing, like a same thing. If you combine red and green light, you, you that's how you get yellow is red and green light. But then if you combine blue and yellow light, well, that's just all of the light. That's the red, green, blue spectrum. You get white. Okay. Right. Okay. Right. You, so there's a difference between paint mixing, <laughs> which blue and yellow do make green and um, wavelength mixing um, of lights. And yeah, like Beth, I honestly... I don't have a better explanation for it aside from the fact that like there's a certain point at which our because the resolution of our retina is not especially for color isn't necessarily super high so if you have like two colors really 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 close together in t like in tight tightly close together interwoven at a certain point you're going to stop seeing lines of different color and you're just going to start seeing a new color Mm -hmm. And this is just like this is the way color processing works. So it's the same thing as like especially with wavelengths because we obviously can't differentiate individual wavelengths. That our resolution is nowhere near that good yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, to differentiate the individual photons coming at us. But like if you put 
red and green lines next to each other, at a certain point, if you put them super, super close together, you're going to get a different result than if you have them sort of thicker so you can see the contrasting line. And this just has to do with resolution of the retina. But mm -hmm. this yeah, why, why then it makes up any new colors at all is just, it's useful processing visual information. It's useful to have ways to distinguish between colors of things that reflect different wavelengths of light. Yeah. I'm surprised levels. we've gotten this far in this episode and not mentioned the dress. Oh, yeah. The whole, <laughs> like... Wait. <laughs> Wait a sec. So, Dr. Conway and his lab did do some studies on the dress. Of course they did. I did. I have a little bit from Isabel about the dress. I would just like to say this was completely unprompted. I just I thought of this. <laughs> I'm so glad you brought it up, though. So first of all... I hadn't even thought about that at all. First of all, what color was it to you guys? Okay. Do we need... First of all, we need to discuss what the dress is, because there may be listeners right. who... Were living under a rock. <laughs> didn't experience this phenomenon back in... 2016. 2016. In 2016, an image circulated online quite widely... It was kind of a viral meme thing of a picture of this dress that people either thought with certainty, with absolute certainty, they could either see a white and gold dress or a blue and black dress. But it was the same image. It's just people perceived it in two very different ways. Yeah. So, so I saw, I have forever seen blue and bl black. Mm -hmm. um, I have never been able to see the white and gold. Even people who have like shown me sliding scale images where it looks both, it it is blue and black the entire way. Okay, I'm and pretty that's... sure that I saw it as blue and black as well. But I also have some mm -hmm. vague feelings that I could like make it a bit closer to not being blue and black. Mm -hmm. I don't really remember very well. So when I originally saw the picture, I saw blue and black. I read through the paper that um, Dr. Conway published on this, one of them, and they have like a bunch of different kind of like lightings and alterations to the image to help you understand how it could be perceived in both the ways. And now I can kind of switch between the two, but that's, it takes a lot of thinking effort to do so. But I ha Isabella mm -hmm. is going to talk a little bit about the dress and assumptions of the visual system. Okay. I don't know if you talked with him about this, but he did do some work um, that I didn't participate in, well, I participated in as a subject, but not as a researcher, um, back when the uh, color changing dress meme was <laughs> was going around, mm -hmm. um, which I found to be quite interesting because it basically was talking about how the reason why that dress seems different to different people is because your brain is making assumptions about the luminance in that picture. And if you think the, lum if, if, the if your brain thinks the dress is frontlit versus backlit, you see different things, mm -hmm. but it's such a like deeply ingrained assumption. You can't like control that consciously. I mean, I don't know. I know some people can switch back and forth. I was never able to, mm -hmm. but um, I think it, it really shows how like all your senses, you, you think there is this fully constructed world, but if you start to pick at it, you see that really we've just constructed a kind of really remarkable approximation of most things. Like something that messes with me sometimes is the fact that you really only have uh, sharp visual acuity in like in, in your fovea in the center of your vision and anywhere else it's blurry and you don't notice most of the time because you're obviously only looking at the center 
of your vision. But sometimes I just think about it and I'm like, oh my God, I actually can't see most things right now. I'm sorry, I... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> For those of us who are astigmatic, um, everything is blurry, <laughs> even in the center of focus. Um, yeah, this yeah. is definitely something about normal vision <laughs> when you have when you have astigmatisms and other types of um, vision yeah. deficits. This definitely but, like, changes. But no, you definitely like if you focus on something, you can definitely become aware that everything else is far less mm-hmm. in focus. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I've had moments where this has like come to my mind, and I've been sort of mind blown by it looking out over a vast expanse of space like if you're standing on a terrace for example you can think at least that you can see what's immediately in front of you and what's like however many miles and kilometers away huge expanses of countryside or cities and stuff and like you can have everything you can believe that you have everything in focus all at one time which obviously you can't but like it's, it's extraordinary that you can do that, that we have these inbuilt lenses that are able to change their focal length at like a moment's notice and you don't even notice that you're doing it. I mm-hmm. think that's really mm-hmm. extraordinary. Yeah. I was going to say it's like the fact that um, you can see your nose at all times, but your brain just edits oh that out oh when, my you're, gosh, when you're looking at something. Just notice and then, <laughs> and then if you think about it, listeners can try this at home. Think about the fact that you can see your nose. Don't look at your nose. Look look straight ahead, but you can still see your nose. And when you have yeah. a nose as big as mine, it's really quite obvious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's the dress the dress is really interesting. And I, I like that she pointed out that it's something that is kind of she didn't say innate, but like it's ingrained. I can't remember the word she used, but ingrained, basically yeah. like ingrained that luminance we don't think about. We don't mm-hmm. think about if something is front lit or backlit, yeah. and so that's why there was probably such adamant disagreement between people because it was this like mm-hmm. ingrained, yeah. you know, I processing mean, of like, the image. It's so interesting to think about how many steps and pieces of information go into creating color, which we then see and we think. I know what color that is. Like, I can see it. I know what color that is. Why would you ask me anything about color? Like, it doesn't make any... Like, it's obvious, but it's not obvious. It's only obvious because our brains are doing such a good job of making us unaware of what's going on in our brains to make it happen. Our brains are so clever. Mm -hmm. So I think I have one last clip that I definitely... Well, two two more clips that I wanted to play you. One from Dr. Conway again, because... There was something really interesting about his own background that I wanted, like, that I asked him about and wanted to kind of bring up in the podcast. And then I have a last clip from Isabel explaining a kind of a fun thought experiment that we neuroscientists study. Study. We talk about when we talk about fission and color fission. So I asked Dr. Conway about what it's like, because if you read his bio, he's also actually an artist. So I asked him what it means to him to be studying neuroscience of color and also be an artist and working in Hmm. with color in a different way it's funny because um i don't really think of making art and doing neuroscience as in some deep way pursuing different problems they're both 
explorations of vision and of perception and of thought. Um, it's just one, the ex experiments are in the studio spilling bits of paint or weaving different colored silks together and seeing what happens. And in the other, you know, it's, it's running experiments to uncover, you know, neural activity and seeing what that might tell you about how these representations work. And in terms of the practice of them, you know, there's creativity in both. There's sort of serendipity and, and wonder and excitement and, you know, surprise and all that sort of thing in both domains. I think, you know, where they do differ is in science, there is a kind of right answer. There is like we have now, you know, you get to the point where you feel like, yes, you've answered a question, uh, or at least you've advanced the question to a new question. Um, and it does have some objective merit. In art, what's nice about it is, it may be objective in so far as every time you put red paint next to green paint, the red and green, you know, scintillate and pop out or whatever, but whether or not it's beautiful or successful as an image or moves people, you know, that's like, that. I don't know. I mean, that's really going to be up to you. And so there, you know, it, it, it remains in a kind of subjective playground, which is liberating in some sense, because you can kind of do whatever you want. There are ways in which these two things interact. So, you know, in the studio, I learned that if you want to make, uh, uh, you know, a, an image really glow, you take the white sheet of paper and you apply a yellow wash over it. Um, and, you know, from a scientific point of view, that's really troubling because <laughs> the actual amount of light entering your eye off of the white sheet of paper is now reduced by having applied a pigment to it. Mm -hmm. So why does it look brighter? So, you know, right away you, you discover that, huh, Brightness isn't just about the amount of light entering your eye. There's a very interesting interaction between brightness and hue or, or color. And that particular interaction is well known, but we have no idea how it comes about or what the, what the neural mechanisms are that support the interaction of brightness and hue. And in some sense, that was what motivated or one of the things that motivated that MEG study and motivates our future work in MEG is to understand those kinds of interactions. So there are a number of kind of, I call them empirical discoveries in the studio, where you kind of trip upon something and think, oh, hang on a minute. There's something that's going on there that provides a question that, you know, demands an answer in science. And then the flip side is also true. There are a number of uh, experiments and discoveries we've made and other people have made that have, you know, given me pause in the studio and, and moved me in a different direction. Um, you know, I think one of the ideas I come back to is, is this sort of, you know, if we were to accumulate all of the knowledge of how brains work, all of the knowledge of how spectral information gets turned into color and thought and so on, would, would, I, would I understand color? Like, is there still an uncrossable gap between mm -hmm. th that knowledge and a kind of real understanding a kind of like a, a, a sort of in my bones do i get it um and so i started to explore that idea in a set of sculptures where i drafted a very simple set of rules and then you know the rules are broken plates of glass drilled and then threaded with brilliantly colored silks uh, 
And the rules are very simple and very straightforward. They're, they're a lot like Sol LeWitt's sets of rules for these wall drawings. Um, but the amazing thing is how unpredictable your experience of these sculptures are once they're made. I mean, I say you, I mean me. It's like I made the rules. I have it, I visualize it, I can picture it in my mind's eye, but it's just a very different experience to actually be sensorily engaged with these sculptures. Mm -hmm. And for, for me, in some sense, that, that whole um, kind of project became a way of exploring this idea of the uncrossable gap that, mm -hmm. that we encounter. Cool. It really, um, it's so interesting what he was saying, so many thoughts that are coming to my mind. The one where he was like, if we understand better what's happening in our brain, like, does that change your interaction with the art? It was just, it really made me think of a quote by Richard Feynman, which I then went and looked up, where he's talking about a conversation with an artist friend of his and um, the artist is like, oh, look how beautiful this flower is. And like, don't, don't you think that sort of taking it apart and understanding it in a more scientific way, don't you think you'd lose something of the beauty of it? And Feynman just completely disagrees. And he, sa he says that he can still appreciate the aesthetic beauty of it the same way that the artist can, but he can also appreciate other levels of beauty of this object. Mm -hmm. I don't know, it's just a really interesting set of thoughts. And, like, on that topic, this leads us right into our little philosophical question that you may or may not have heard of, but it's a very common one in the field of neuroscience when you're talking about color. So I'm going to play it. Have you heard of um, the, the thought experiment of Mary, the color scientist, in the black and white room? Yeah, I have heard of this because I, I think I learned about this actually in one of my neuroscience courses, but I'd love for you to explain it. Yeah, I haven't heard about it. Okay. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, no, this is one of my favorites, because I think it's just mm -hmm. such a, it, it really drives the point home. But basically, the idea is Mary is this um, woman who is uh, raised her entire life in a room that's entirely black and white, uh, and, you know, presumably has no mirrors or anything. Um, and so she never sees color. Um, but she's a scientist who studies color. And so uh, over, over the course of uh, many years, she learns everything there is to know about the color red and like the acti activi activation it causes in the brain, um, the wavelengths it elicits, what, you know, everything about it. Um, and so then the question is, well, if one day the door to the black and white room opens and she goes out and sees the color red for the first time, will that add to her knowledge of the color red? Mm -hmm. The experience of seeing it. And I, I mean, I think to me, the answer is fairly obvious that yes, there is gonna be something conveyed that you can't get from purely uh, physical knowledge of what red is. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's a really interesting thing to think about because it really makes you think, well, okay, what information is being added? Like, what is that experience? And if, if there's, it, it, there's kind of no way to convey that information, it's a purely internal, um, piece of information. That's a that's a great thought experiment, but I it makes me think of how much more profound I'm going to find the videos that have come out recently of these people who uh, were born colorblind and are given yeah, yeah. the glasses that allow you to see color. And it's like they're just such powerful videos to begin with because these people are you know seeing color for the first time. But this idea that like someone can study color their whole life and be colorblind or, or live in a black and white room 
what does actually experiencing the mm-hmm. color add to that knowledge? And there, yeah. I, I agree. Mm-hmm. I think there is something there. It's kind there. of a question about empathy <sighs> and whether you can... I don't know, that's at least how it comes across to me, that, like, mm. how much can you understand about a situation that you've never lived? Mm-hmm. A lot. Yeah, it's really about human experience. Mm. Yeah. Within your yeah. research. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, so cool. that's the... Yeah. End of this discussion of color. I hope we feel like we've learned something. I, a little bit. Or a lot yes. of it. <laughs> I gotta do a quiz. So I'm just going to give a quick plug to the socials. Yeah. Um, we would love it if you interacted with us on uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We are at not yet a DR. Or if you felt like sending us an email, that's phd32b at gmail.com that's phd32b at gmail.com and yeah please get in touch please uh like subscribe review if you like our podcast maybe send it to a friend if you don't like our podcast maybe send it to an enemy (laughs) 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 um yeah if you do any of those things uh it will really help Mm -hmm. us out and we really appreciate it that's all i have to say and don't forget to tell us what your favorite color is. Yeah. Yes. Comment with and an emoji why. of your favorite color. The harder question. And why. Why. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So now I'm just going to want to hear your guys' buzzer sounds. Oh. Okay. Uh, I've got mine. Do you go first? Okay. Right. Um, mine is probably one of my favorite uh, words for a color that isn't in English. And it's orange. And that's Swedish for orange. So my buzzer sound is orange. Okay. I <laughs> like that a lot. I'm going to go a different way. And I'm going to go... Mm-hmm. And that's the colour spectrum just um, transferred in sound. I like just vibrant. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Okay. So, my first question for you guys is... This is kind of a, a tricky question because I didn't say this explicitly in the episode. So this, you're going to have to use some oof, some brain processing. Use those neural networks. Um, <laughs> Two-part question. What does it mean to be a trichromat? And how many cones do humans have for seeing color? <laughs> Beth, you start so low, I'm not sure if I heard you at the same time that I heard She's starting Alistair. at the UV. She's going all the way from UV to... <laughs> Okay, Alistair, you start. Beth, you add anything. Okay. Okay. Uh, so right. a trichromat is someone that has activation of all three of their cones. Like they can see three uh, distinct wavelengths using their cones. And there are three types of cones. There are short, medium, and long cones, as well as rods, which do luminance and movement and some other things. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Okay, so good job, Alistair. Ding, ding, ding. You got a point. Yay. Thank you for participating. Next question. I just want somebody, anybody who buzzes in, buzzers ready, describe one of the findings, but not one of the asymmetries of the paper. Mm. Just what, Just describe the kind of first finding that we talked about in terms of... Orafu. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to go with Beth that first time. Um, that English speakers had more words to describe warmer colors than they had to describe cooler colors. Ding, ding, ding. 
Correct. Very correct. Beth gets a point. <laughs> okay. The, uh, I've got two more questions for you. One is for all of the points. One is for fun. So <laughs> for all of the points. <laughs> for all of the points, what is a color space? Orange. Beth definitely got there first. Okay. A color space, and now I'm getting buzzing in so early, is how colors are mapped in your brain. So like how different frequencies of light are perceived. Orange. Orange. I'm going to give Alistair a chance to um, add. A color space is a way of representing colors. It doesn't have to be in the brain. It's just how you can represent colors either in a wheel or in the rgb spectrum like mm-hmm. um it's mm-hmm. just how you represent okay. color that's a much better answer yeah so i'm gonna give all of the points to alistair <laughs> all my points that, it's not necessarily how you represent colors but how you organize them okay yes. okay so maybe all of the points yeah, except okay. one okay all of the points except one and I'll, I'll give that one to beth <laughs> okay kind thanks of. i really wanted your charity <laughs> what you have four points now and I have all the I points. Will, I minus one. <laughs> I will definitely accept your cutoff points without any hesitation because I believe in recycling and um, being grateful for yeah. what you have. Okay, Beth's a better person than you, Alistair. That's what she's trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> okay, last and final question for all of the fun: What is your favorite color? Ooh. My favorite color is yellow. I didn't buzz mm-hmm. in. Mm? My favorite color is yellow. Okay. Orange. Um, is your <laughs> no? That was me buzzing in. My favorite yeah. color is blue. Okay. And do you guys have any reasons why? It's not the reason why, but it's a justification that I will give. Okay. That it's you don't have to justify what your favorite color is. You know, I'm, just... I'm going to justify it anyway. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's a very sunny color, but it's a color that makes everything brighter and warmer and mm. it's just like sounds like a reason to me yeah i think that's a that's a justification for you mine is kind of an inverse answer to that and i guess blue and yellow as we said are kind of opposite colors but i really like blue and it's kind of a specific shade of blue i like a dark blue like a deep blue kind of like um you can see around my room I have some <laughs> blue things because it's my favorite color. But I like, I don't know, it, it it draws me in. When I look at it like a, a rich blue, a dark blue, it just kind of like, mm. All right. Yeah. That's really I can very much relate to that, especially, and I was, I realized this, like, after recording the episode, I was thinking about this and, like, reading about color and the fact that, like, there's a certain time, not necessarily time, but there's a certain, like, brightness of light at which rods and all three of our cones are active and it's typically at twilight and for me at twilight there's a particular color blue color of the sky that is the best color it Mm. is just (laughs) the best one all other colors just pale in comparison to this really vividly deep blue and then after like doing all the research for this episode i'm like what if it's because i'm perceiving it with four photopigments yeah and that's it's just much more depth like that means there's another photopigment worth of depth to it for Uh me like maybe i just like it that much more because i have that much more information about it yeah 
There's not much Who's more to stimulation say? coming from it. Yeah. But yeah, the color of the sky, like at twilight, is my absolute favorite color. Yeah. That's now imagine if <laughs> imagine if you were an insect and you could perceive UV. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. Yeah, we didn't even talk about really like cool. mammals are kind of sad because like we as humans are trichromats. We have three cones, mm-hmm. and that started with the New World monkeys. Mm-hmm. So it's only a small subset of mammals that have trichromatic vision. Most mammals have um, just two cones. So mm-hmm. they can perceive kind of two separate colors. But when you get into the realm of insects and crustaceans and stuff, I'm sure you've all heard of the, um, what is it, the shrimp, the... Yeah, the um, fighting shrimp, Why what's it called? Um, yeah, I'm forgetting its name right can now. can punch with, like, the force yeah, of with a what? car. Oh, my God. What is I it? Have the mantis, mantis shrimp. The mantis shrimp. Yeah, it can punch with the force of, the co- of a car. I don't know if it's a car, ridiculous. but it's like they have something like that. It can yeah. like break glass aquariums with like this oh supercharged punch of its little claw that it does using water dynamics and physics and stuff to do this. I can't explain sure. any more than that. But it has like it has sixteen color receptors. Jeez. So, I just yeah can't imagine the depths of color that it can perceive. Yeah, like that's. So many. Yeah. So yeah. many we cones. Three. What are you doing with all of those cones, shrimp? That uh, must be so cool. Can you imagine how beautiful everything would be? Like with all those like mm-hmm. nuances and shades and mm-hmm. wow. And I do cool. have to give there is a great, great episode from Radio Lab on this kind of phenomenon. Color vision a little bit, like not so but a lot about like how we perceive color, tetrochromasticity, and the mantis shrimp, and it's 16 colors, and they represent color, like the visual spectrum, using different, using music and sounds. So they have like, at mm. every, for every cone, that gives you like kind of 16 different layers of sound at the, I guess up two octaves, probably really, you have two octaves of color vision as opposed to three notes. Oh. And it's really, yeah. it's a really beautiful episode in terms of the soundscape, so I highly recommend everyone check it out from Radiolab. But that's the end of this episode. Thank you all for coming on this colorful journey with me. I hope you've enjoyed and learned something new about color and are going to look at colors differently now and think about how yellow makes everything brighter, even though it technically reduces the amount of light that is coming off of an object. (laughs) White is the brightest thing, but yellow looks brighter. Sorry, white. (laughs) And yeah, I don't know. There's so much exciting stuff to know and think about color. And I was just really excited to do this episode. So yeah. Yeah. It was a fantastic episode. Thank you for taking us on this journey. Mm-hmm. And thank you especially to Dr. Conway, Isabel, and Shridhar for making time to be interviewed. Yeah. I really appreciated yeah. getting to hear from them about the study themselves and getting to ask stupid questions like, why spirals? I was so curious. About, yeah. Why are they colored spirals? So this is... But they all had great, great yeah. answers. I know. Just... Yeah. Mm-hmm. I am Sienna. I'm Beth. And I'm Alistair. And this is Not Yet a Doctor. Tune in next time for more fun science things and let Allison take you away on this visit. <laughs>